I want to talk to you this morning about the divine providence of God. Now, last week when I started off, I said, look, I want to talk about the key of David. And during the week as I prepared for the sermon, it changed. The Lord changed my heart. As I was reading through the passage, and you will see through the passage, the topic of the sermon changed from the key of David to the providence of God. It is good to start in small beginnings. The Bible says, do not despise small beginnings. And that's what we will not do. But we will look at the divine providence of God. The word providence means a divine intervention. It means His guidance and His direction. So God's divine direction, His intervention in your lives. And we've got so many testimonies of this happening, isn't it? So many times when we come to a point and we feel we've come to the end of our ability to see in a situation what's going to happen, and all of a sudden, something happens. And you can't put your finger on it, but you know that it was outside of your control. It was coming from God. It is His divine providence. There was a small town in Austria... And when Napoleon was actually coming in on this town, his his soldiers were surrounding this town. And on the inside of the town, the people were sitting there and they knew they were in trouble. They looked around, they could see the present danger. They could see Napoleon's coming up. They knew this army is strong. They had no means to protect themselves. So they looked upon this army when they went to bed. And the next morning when they woke up, they knew... It was a matter of a few hours before Napoleon will tell his troops and his soldiers to come down the mountains and to attack this little town. And they came to the pastor of that town. And they said, what shall we do? He said, well, it is a Sunday today, and on a Sunday what do we normally have? And they said, well, we go to church and we listen to sermons, we worship God. And he said, well, that's what we're going to do. Ring the bells, get the people in the church, and we will sing to God, and we'll preach the Word of God. We'll proclaim His Word. So they rang the bells, and they got the people, it's not a big town, into the small church. But what they didn't know, and this is the, the providence of God, His divine providence, what they didn't know is when Napoleon's soldiers up on the mountains heard the bells ringing, they thought, what's going on here? Because normally when they came to cities, the cities were in fear and there was not a lot of resistance against them. But here is now bells going off. And they thought for a moment that during the night, the Austrian army has actually come into the city. And the word came out that they would retreat and not attack that little town. That is what I call divine providence. That is something which they didn't know the answer of. They looked upon their circumstances and everything was dark and clouded around them. And what did they do? They looked up and they started worshipping God and He intervened wonderfully. Uh, We're going to look at the book of Revelation and I want you to open up in Revelation chapter 3 this morning. Now you know, as I always said and as I continue saying that, if... We look at the Word of God. I want you to apply three things to the Word of God. And we're going to do this over this year. Next week we're going to start with a book. And I'm leaning on two books and praying to the Lord to give me direction. Uh, One is the book of Acts. It will be good to go through and see how the church has grown. 
as I believe God will help us to grow in this place. But the second one is the book of John, Gospel according to John. And it's good to know who Jesus is if you go through the Gospel of John. And like I said, I'm reading currently through the book of Mark. I'm busy in, in, in uh, uh, Corinthians. And I've also started in the book of Isaiah, as you're going to see in today's sermon. There's three applications that you always have to do with the Word of God. The first one is a local application. And as we're going to look at the Word to this morning, you will see that there was a local church that this letter was written to. And then there's a prophetic application, and that means that there's future events that, that will come out of this passage. Some already happened, and some is still going to happen. And then there's a personal application. And that's when God takes His finger and He puts it on you, and He says, I'm talking to you now. This is for you. So, as you sit here this morning, again, don't look around. Look upon God and say, Father, what do you want to tell me? Now, let's go with that in mind to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. A well-known passage. I believe all of you have heard so many sermons of this this morning. And I've heard a lot of sermons of it. And, and the concentration a lot of times is on the name, brotherly love. Um, and what's happened around that. But this morning, I want to use this to talk to you about the providence of God. Let's follow in the Word. He says, Revelation 3 verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. I will write on, his, on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Heavenly Father, as we come to your scripture this morning, Father, I pray that you make my heart at peace, Lord, this morning as I proclaim your word. I thank you, Lord, that your word will not go out and come back void. I thank you, Father, that you direct people's footpaths and their steps. And this morning, Father, each and every person who's in this building, you've directed them. Yes, Lord, we've woken up and we've made a decision to, to come or to stay or to go. But, Father, you direct. And this morning, let us hear something this morning that we will never forget and that you can use to build our faith. For faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the preaching of the Word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What a wonderful passage. 
Revelation chapter 3 verse 7. And so many times, like I say, I've heard sermons being preached about brotherly love and the faithful church. And it's true. Local application, there was a church called Philadelphia. And it was a faithful church. We can read it all there. It says it all there. But this morning I want to use this passage to talk about the providence of God. Maybe not a passage that a lot of people will go to. But as we're going to go through this and unpack it, you'll see that God provides for His people, even to this church. Now, Philadelphia was a really interesting little town or city. It is a missionary outpost which the Hellenists of the day, those were people who lived in the culture of ancient Greece, they actually set this place as an outpost. And it was a really great position, location for the city to be, because it was the highway between Europe and the East. It was the highway, and from this place you can actually go into Pergia and the barbaric nations to the East. And what they wanted to do in the city is they, they set it up there so that they could teach the Greek language to these barbaric nations to teach them the culture and the lifestyle of the Greeks. They called it a missionary. At this point, the sermon was cut off due to technical difficulties. The rest of the sermon has been recorded in a studio. So, and we will also find that in the city we found a synagogue. There was also a church here, and obviously this is where this letter was written to, from Jesus to the church, but the church members, the people of the church, were not allowed in the synagogue. In fact, later on when you read through the passage and, and what we've seen this morning, he says, I've got it against those of the synagogue of Satan. But this church was strong. Look at verse 8, he says, For you have a little strength. Now a lot of people might concentrate on the word little there, but I want to concentrate on the word strength. And, and the word here for strength, is uh, the word dunamos. It's the same word that we find in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, when the Lord says to the disciples and said, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. You will receive dunamis power, and you will become our witnesses in uh, Judea and to the ends of the world. First in Jerusalem, Judea and the ends of the world. Uh, so here we have that. He, said, he doesn't say you have got no strength, but he says they've got little strength. Now, little strength here does not mean they were weak. No, they were by far not weak. But it, all, it, it means that they were small in numbers or small in influence. You can think of these people when uh, the synagogues gathered together and in that place in Philippi, which was also called Little Athens because of his affluence, that these people, these people of the church, they were not welcome in their circles. When they have their church services, people were not going to their church services, so it might look from the outside in that they were little in strength. But, dear friend, that strength, that dynamos, dynamic power they've got to be witnesses, to be martyrs of, of, of Christ, is a powerful thing to have. But not only that, it says there in verse 8 that you have little strength, but also, and I want you to have a look at the next two words here, he says, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now look at these two things here, my word and you did not deny my name. 
And this is exactly the attack of Satan. This is where he loves to attack the children of God. Since the beginning of time. This goes back to the Garden of Eden. And uh, in fact, dear friends, Satan is a one-trick pony. Uh, and you know what it is. A one-trick pony is if you've got a pony and uh, you teach him a trick to jump over a blocks. Uh, and while he jumps over the blocks, he's got the same movement. And uh, it's a fantastic trick. And you get your friends over and you say, hey, so just sit down, I want to show you my pony. And my pony's got a trick, let me show you the trick. And, and, and the pony do the trick. So a few months go on and you go to the same friend and uh, you sit down and after dinner he says, man, I've got to show you my pony. And my pony's got a trick and he got the pony out and he, he do the same trick. Then you will say that this man has got a one trick pony. Well, Satan is the same. And I want you to show this to you. He attacks this church on two ways. The first one is for His Word. Listen, let me tell you today that He will attack the children of God, the Christians, on the Word of God and also on the deity, on His name. And I've got to show you this. Let's go back in the Bible to Genesis, the very first book in the Bible. And in Genesis chapter 1, up until chapter 2, verse uh, verse 3 it says that God created everything now I want you to follow this I want you to open up your Bible because this is where Satan started nothing has changed it's still his same trick that he's trying today he attacks the word of God and he attacks the deity of Christ and those things my dear friend has never changed Look, let me tell you, the attack of the enemy in, in the state today is to remove the Word of God. Out of homes is to remove the Word of God. Out of schools to remove the Word of God. And let me tell you this, dare I say this, out of churches today to remove the Word of God. Because he knows that if he removes the Word of God, he can attack the deity of Christ to deny the name of Jesus Christ. Now, let's do some work here. In Genesis chapter 2. Now let's have a look at verse 4. He says here, This is the history of heavens and the earth when they were created in the day. Now look at this word here. Lord God created when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. What does it say there? In Genesis chapter 1 he says, And God created, God created, God created. Elohim. But here, for the first time, in verse 4, he says, Lord God. The word Lord in the Old Testament is the title of God. It is a, a title word. It shows towards the, uh, the divinity, the, the deity of Christ. And you say, why is this important? Well, just follow me. When you go further down, he says in... Uh, in verse 5, before he planted the field was on the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain. Look at verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. This is important. Follow me. He says in verse 8, the Lord God, again his title, and God planted the garden eastward. And then we go down to verse 15. He says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden and tented and keep it. Now this is the verse for me now. Look at verse 16. He says, And 
the Lord God commanded man. You see that? Here for the first time we see the commandment of God coming to man. The Lord God used His Word. Now we've got the deity and the Word combined. The Lord God commanded man and saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, it continues in verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that a man... So, here we find it. Just to recap for you. Chapter 1, God. Chapter 2 brings in the title. Now follow me to chapter 3. And you've got to really, really concentrate now. Because this can just slip you past like that. He says in verse 1, He says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God has made. You see that? He says, Lord God has made. Now, this is the cunning plan. This is the one-trick pony. This is the trick he's been playing for ages and ages. It continues in that verse. Chapter 3, verse 1, And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said? Oh, what have you noticed? Has God indeed said? What did he leave out? He left out the title of God, Lord God. He didn't say, did Lord God say no? He comes to the woman and he says, and he attacks the deity of Christ, of God, and also the Word. He puts a question mark on the Word. And that's the same today. I haven't got time because I can take you through the whole Bible and show you that thin line going through. But let's fast forward now to the book of Revelation. So we are Genesis, and now we go to Revelation. Still with me? He says it here in Revelation. Now look at chapter 1 verse 9. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation. John was in the tribulation. In fact, they sent him to the Isle of Patmos to get rid of him. Why? To quiet his voice because he was proclaiming the word of God. But they sent him there. Listen, I'll tell you today that your family will want to get rid of you, your friends. You stand up and proclaim the word of God and they say away with you. And here we have it. He says, and his companion tribulation and the kingdom uh, and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island of Pathmos. Uh, for, now look at this in your Bible, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Why are you in persecution? Why are you in this tribulation? Why are you sitting on this island away from society, John? For two reasons. So write there in your Bible, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. The Greek word for word there is the word logos. And here we have it. It's the same trick. It's the same in your life. It's the same in my life today. He wants to attack us. Now, it is really interesting if we go back to Revelation chapter 3 verse 8. It's interesting the description Jesus chose for himself addressing this church. Look at verse 7, Revelation 3 7. He says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy and he who is true. Isn't it wonderful that our providence from God comes from the one who is holy? Yes, I know God is love. 
And I know God is a just God. And I know all of these things, but above all, He is holy. And He is true. He chooses this. Look, the thing is, God didn't just choose titles for Himself or descriptions for Himself just flippantly or just off the cuff. No, it had a meaning. Each and everything He said is specific. He is meticulous in what He says and in what He did. And here we find it. He says, He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Now this is really interesting if you look at the passage. He is specific in his description to himself, to the churches. I want you to have a look at this now as I go through the churches with you. Let's look at the seven churches. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 2. We all know that it starts off with the church in Ephesus, or the loveless church. As you read through that, he says you haven't got love. But the description he uses for him, in that church is, is specific for that church. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these things. Says he, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, this is important to realize. Uh, what happens when you're loveless? Well, you have got no fellowship. You don't spend time together. You're absent. If you're absent, and here we find Jesus choosing for himself a description. He says, I'm in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I'm there. God is love, and I'm there for you. He chooses that title specifically for Ephesus. The persecuted church, Smyrna. Revelation 2 verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says, the first and the last, who was dead and who came to life. He talks to the persecuted church, my friend, and to them he says, Look, I was dead and I came alive. I'm the first and the last. Yes, you're going through persecution, but know this, that I'm there, and I've experienced this myself. To the compromising church, Percamos, Revelation 2 verse 12, he says, And to the angel of the church in Percamos write, These things says, He who has the sharp two-edged sword. What does the sword do? It cuts. It, it is the word of God. And, and to the compromising church, he says, Look, my word is sharp and it's going to cut. It is the plumb line that you need to stand on. You cannot compromise. In fact, let me say to you that the descriptions that Christ chose for Himself is either a blessing or an encouragement or it's a judgment. To the church in Ephesus, it is encouragement and judgment. In the persecuted church, it is an encouragement. And here for the, for the compromising church, it is a judgment. The Word of God is going to judge, you hear me, the compromising in the church today. Let me say that again. The Word of God is going to judge. It's not what I say. It's not what I think. You can say, look, homosexuality is part of Christianity. I'm not saying it is not the Word of God saying it is. You might say, but all your sins are great and it's all sicknesses now. You might say that you might have your opinion and a lot of people might have that. But the Word stands firm. And then we find the corruption. Thyatira. Revelation 2.18, and listen to him when he says this, 
and to the angel of the church in Tithara write, these things says the Son of God. This is a corrupt church. He steps in in his title and his description. He says, the Son of God, and listen to this, who has eyes like flames of fire and his feet like fine brass. You know what fire does? Fire purifies. And to the corrupt church, he says, I'm going to purify you. And he says, I've got eyes like a flame. You cannot hide from the eyes of God. That's to the corrupt. He sees through the corruptness. To the dead church, Sardis, in Revelation 3.3, and to the angel of the church in Sardis. Remember, this is a dead church. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. What does spirit bring? It brings life. He says you are dead. But this says the one with the seven spirits of God. Now, just as a side note here, there's not seven spirits. There's only one. These are characteristics of the Spirit of God which you find in the book of Isaiah. But that, I'll go over that at a later time. And then he comes to the faithful church in Philadelphia and he says, He who is holy, true, has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and, and shuts and no one opens. Fantastic how he chose for himself these, these descriptions. To the lukewarm church, and I want you to concentrate on this one, he says, this is like this here, in chapter 3, 14, Revelation, he says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, what do you write down? The one who says these things, who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Have a look at this. He says the faithful and true witness. What is somebody doing who is lukewarm when the fire gets turned on? When it gets too hot, oh man, they run. Because they are lukewarm. They never get hot. They never get on fire for God. And when the going gets tough, they run away. But Jesus is not here. He says in his description, he says, I am the faithful and true witness. Faithful and true. The, the Greek word for witness there is the word martyr, which means a martyr. He's going to die for what he believed in. He says, I'm faithful to the end. And you and I have got the, the, the witness of that on the cross. Now, why do I say all of these things? And why did I bring this out? Because I believe the Holy Spirit wants to tell you this morning that He's specifically interested in your life. And He's not going to have the one, one fit all fit, you know, inside of the box. No, no. He looked at your life specifically and for your circumstances, He applies Himself. Each one of these churches, and it's no doubt at some stage, a lot of Christians will find themselves in one of these areas. And it's then that in the descriptions that He had for the seven churches, that He comes forth and He applies them to your life. Fascinating how he chooses this title for the church in Philadelphia. We see that he says that he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And I want to use this description of him to explain to you the providence of God. Uh, and I want to concentrate on I haven't heard a lot of sermons using Revelation chapter 3, verse 8 in the church in Philadelphia as a sermon on the providence of God. I've heard a lot of sermons preached about the brotherly love and the faithful church and the, the, the work that's going to come out of it. But seldom have I heard anybody use this as an example of the providence of God. 
But as we continue through, you will see that it is. You see, we will see in the next few passages that the providence of God comes with authority. And it gives direction. So, let's first look at the providence of God and with it comes the authority. He says there in verse 7, He who has the key of David. The key of David. You will only find these words twice in the Bible. Only here and in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah chapter 22. And we're going to go there in a minute. But let me just explain to you something about the key. You know and I know that if you've got a key, it is a symbol of power and authority. Well, it gives you the power. If I give you the keys of my house, then you've got the authority to go to the front door, to put the key in and to enter into my house. Now, if you're going to knock out the window, the, the neighbors is going to look at you and they're going to call the police. But if you've got the key, you can walk through the front door. Not only is it a symbol of power and authority, it's also a symbol of knowledge. Again, if you stand on one side of a door, you don't know what's on the other side. It's only when you open the door with the key that you open it up and you walk in and you, you can grow knowledge. It's also a symbol of unlimited access. Again, you stand in front of the door. If you've got no key, you can't access it. But if you've got the key, it's unlimited access that you get into that. So those are the things of the key of David he talks about now. Now Jesus refers back to an Old Testament story that happened. And the question is why? Why? Well, we need to go back to the Old Testament and to the passage and to see why this is the title he chose for himself. So follow me to Isaiah chapter 22 as we read from verse 15. Isaiah 22. Now, I'll give you a little bit of background. So, in chapter one, uh, chapter 22, from verse 1, we find that the city is, is now sieged by a great army. And it says there from the first verses that instead of the people in sackcloth and ass, or crying out to God, or tear their clothes and, and ask for God for help. No. What do they do? They've got a party. The Bible says here in Isaiah chapter 22, they're on the rooftops and they make a merry noise. And one wonders why. Why not preparing for war? Why not taking your children out of the city? Why not? But it's as if, let's drink today and tomorrow we die. That kind of scenario. And the question is why? Well, if, you, if we read in verse 15, we will find that the ruler of the city, well, that's what he did. He just looked after himself. So let's read this now. Says in verse 15, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go proceed to this steward, to Shebna, that's his name, who is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewn a sepulchre here? As he who hewns himself a sepulchre on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock, Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariot shall be ashamed for your master's house. So I will drive you out of your house, office, 
and from the position he will pull you down. Now we learn a few lessons out of this passage here. First of all, we see that he says there, go proceed to this steward. Steward there. You see, the explanation of the word steward there is treasurer. And what does the treasurer do? He controls the money. He sits over the money. But not only this, he gives his name, he says, to Shebna, who is over the house. So not only is he the treasurer, this man Shebna, but he is also the ruler. So we know that power corrupts. An absolute power corrupts absolutely. So he says, go to this treasurer, who is also the ruler, and say to him something. In fact, Isaiah was walking amongst the tombs when he met this man there, Shepna, and what is he busy doing? He's busy to hewn himself out a sepulcher amongst the rocks, like a big graveyard. And when he walks up to this man, the voice of the Lord says, ask him, what have you here? In other words, Shepna, why do you hewn out yourself a sepulcher here amongst the royalty? You see, this man, and as you read on about him, he was never one of them. He was an imposter. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing who just looked after himself. He didn't care about the people. The people were standing on the, on the housetops and in a merry way the armies were coming in, but he was just looking after his own pocket and his own selfish desires. And now, even in death, after his luxurious living, in death he wants to get himself a place amongst the, the royals. Or the wealthy ones. So as I ask him, he says, what have you here? This shows towards pride. Listen friend, the Bible teaches you and me, he says, not to think of ourselves higher than we ought to. In, in the book of Romans chapter 12, don't think of yourself like Shepner amongst people you shouldn't. And then he goes on and he says, and whom have you here? I say, what are you building here? And whom have you here? Where is your lineage? You, you see, if you talk to somebody else there who is doing that and is rightfully to be there, they will tell you, there is my dad and his grandfather and all the lineage is there. Whom have you here? He did not have royal blood. And then he is trying to hear his sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. And now comes the judgment of God on this man. And let me tell you again that God will judge pride. You are so unhigh and lofty and think of yourself, God will judge that. And here is an example. He says, the Lord will throw you away violently. O mighty man, he, think he thought of himself as mighty, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violent and toss you like a ball into a large country. He's going to take him away from that place. So then he says in verse 19, I'll drive you out of your office. And from your position. Oh, the position that people try to get. If it's not from God, it will not last. And then we come to verse 20. It says, Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your rope and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key, here is our phrase, the key of the house of David I will lay upon his shoulder 
so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a pig in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. Now this is Eliakim. Shedna, the imposter, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And uh, let me just refer you back. When you remember to when Jesus spoke to this church, He says in Revelation 3 verse 9, Indeed I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not. Does this sound like Shetna to you? Of course He does. He's amongst them. He says, man, I'm a Jew. He was their treasurer. He was their ruler. But He was not, because in His heart, He only looked after Himself. What, what would He do? He says it there in the book of Revelation he says, they lie, and indeed I will make them to come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Oh dear friend, we see the fulfillment of that, or we see that happening right in front of your eyes here in the book of Isaiah. Look at this now, in verse 20, Isaiah 22, 20. He says, I will call my servant. You see in verse 15, go proceed to this uh, steward. You see, Shepna was a steward. Eliakim is my servant, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your rope. What does that mean? Rope is the authority. I will give him your rope. The, the authority figure was walking around with the rope and everybody saw him with the rope. They knew he was the authority. I'm going to give him the authority that you had. And what? Strengthen him with your belt. That means power. This is a fascinating passage, dear friends, because if you look at it, he will give him authority and power. And let me tell you, authority without power means nothing. Authority without power means nothing. Power without authority is abuse. That's what we get in some countries. We've got leaders, they've got all the power but no authority. And they abuse the power. And people struggle under that. But man, authority with power, and that only comes from God. He says authority and power. Uh, I will give him the rope and the belt. And I will commit your responsibility into his hands. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Authority and power from God comes and he makes him a father of the inhabitants. And then he says, the key of the house of David I will lay upon his shoulder. The rule, that's what it means. The key of the house of David. He's got the authority and what he says stay. If he opens the door, it's open. If he closes the door, it's closed. No good you go and bang on the door if the door is closed. Because the authority holder, the one with power, the one with the key, the key master is the one who will open the door. No one else. You see, he is precise. When he says something, he means it. Oh, how wonderful to know. And this is the next point, dear friends. Who's got the key in Revelation 3 verse 7? It's not you. It's not me. It's Him. Jesus has got the key of David. And listen, He holds on to the key. He didn't give the key to anybody else. He didn't give it to the pastor of the church. You've got no right. God gives you authority and power. He gives you a rope and a belt. 
Oh, I've seen so many men and, and people who wants to hold on to the key. And I thank God that He didn't give the key to, to mankind. How disastrous would that have been? It is the key of the house of David. And here He says He will give it to Elkiah El- for the nation. But in Revelation chapter 7, uh, chapter 3 verse 7, He says, He holds, he comes to them and he uses these words. He says, this is I say to you, holy and truth, who holds the key of David. Jesus Christ is the authority. Jesus Christ is the power. And what he says, stay. And he can do that. Listen to Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. He says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Job 12 verse 14, with him are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. If he breaks a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt. If he imprisons a man, there can be no release. If he withholds water, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. The provision of God. The provision of God is powerful, friend. His divine providence. And here we find this passage in Isaiah chapter 22 and hence Jesus when He comes to them in Revelation 3 verse 7 to this church. He says He holds the key of David and that is a sign the providence of God comes with authority. Now, let me finish by saying the providence of God gives direction. Look at it in verse 7, Revelation 3 7. He says, He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And then he turns to them and says, you've got in front of you an open door. An open door. We know now Jesus Christ holds that key. And friend, if he opens it up, it's open. If it's not, it's, it's not. Look at the direction he gave to Paul. Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Now when they had gone through Perga and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach a word in Asia. Will you want to call that a closed door? I certainly call it a closed door. They were not permitted. By whom? By the Holy Spirit. Who's got the authority and the power to withhold? The Holy Spirit. So they couldn't preach in Asia. But instead of Paul going and sitting on a rock and, and in, 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 in uh, depression, no, no. After they had come to Mysia, he moved on. They tried to go into Bethania, but the Spirit did not permit them. Closed door. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And we know what this happened. It's the, the, the vision of the Macedonian man. And there is an open door. Friend, God opens and closes doors in your life. And you might not like it, or you might like it. But He holds the key. He has the divine providence. He opens up a door like that little town there in, 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 in the time of Napoleon. They didn't know. They were sitting there and they thought they were going to die. But God's divine providence came. When those church bells rang, the, the soldiers disappeared. They thought they were going to die. A closed door. Life is going to close in on them. But God gave them life. An open door. New life. 
He opened the door for you and for me when we got saved. We were sitting in our trespasses and sin. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. But what did He do? He gave us an open door through Jesus Christ in your life. He opens and He directs. You've got to believe in that. Now listen to Paul when he, when he writes in Colossians 4 verse 2. He says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in this, that with thanksgiving, Meanwhile, praying also for us. For what? What should we pray for you, Paul? That God would open to us a door for the Word. He's got the keys of David. He's got the key to do that. To speak the mystery of Christ. God's providence is wonderful, friend. It comes with authority. It gives direction. It gives you wisdom. And it gives you understanding. So, He made the heavens and everything that's in it. Psalm 22 verse 28 says, For the kingdoms is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. He rules over the nations. Yes, people have got dem- democracy and they choose their own leaders. But God eventually rules over them. He brings up a man to rule a nation, to punish that nation through that man. Or, He rules through a man who is brought up to bless that nation through the man, through his leadership. I'll finish off with Proverbs 3 verse 6. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. What does it mean? He will open the right doors and He will close the wrong doors so that you do not fall trapped in those. So here we have it. Revelation, and by far this was not an exposition of the passage. I just thought I'd talk to you about the providence of God. The divine providence. And again I say it is His guidance and His direction when He intervenes. So may God bless you this week as His providence rules over your life.